0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. This evening, we'll continue our series on the book of Judges, and we're up to Judges chapter 6. This is on page 174 in your pew Bibles. And this evening I will be reading verses 1 through 24. And even though it is a longer passage, I will invite you, if you're willing and able, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. "...neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, "'This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. "'I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery.' I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the rites. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. And let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us tonight. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And may you be exalted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been a youth pastor now for a little over 14 years. And uh, for, for nine years here at Westminster. And one of the joys and blessings of my job, my ministry... ...is to be able to come to a worship service... ...where the students or the teenagers lead the worship. Many of you have been to them before. We have youth nights here... Uh, ...usually every spring. But I can remember one in particular several years ago... ...where I asked a young man to come and share... ...some of the ways that God's grace had been at work in his life. And he said something that I thought was incredibly profound... uh, ...incredibly insightful, something that I still remember today... ...something I still think about often today. He said that when he was asked to think of an example... ...of the grace of God at work in his life... ...he had a hard time picking one out... ...because as a child of God... ...it was all of grace. Everything in his life... ...came from the grace of God. And I think that is what we have here tonight... ...in Judges chapter 6. It's as if the quill was dipped in grace... ...to write every line. Grace flows throughout this entire passage... And as we look at it tonight, we'll see that there is indeed surprising grace... ...in the midst of severe distress. There's also surprising grace in the face of disobedience... ...and there is surprising grace in the calling of a deliverer. But we'll start by looking at the first section, verses 1 through 6... ...and as we look at that section, we see the surprising grace that comes... ...even in the midst of severe distress... Now, when you understand the description of the severe distress that the Israelites were under in verses 1 through 6... ...you might think that it's hard to find any grace there at all. You might wonder if I know what I'm talking about. See, for seven years, God's people were suffering under the oppression of their enemies. It was so bad that the people were forced to flee from their homes and live in caves. Now, I'm sure you realize that caves do not make the ideal dream home... Caves are dark and damp. They're cold and they're cramped for space. Yet this is what the people had to resort to. And not only that, but they were left with nothing to eat. Every year, after the people had already done the hard work of planting their crops... ...these Midianite bullies would come and destroy the crops... ...before the Israelites had the chance to enjoy the fruit of their labor. It's like the bully in preschool... ...who as soon as your child has finished building his wondrous tower of blocks, ...comes and knocks it all down. And then your child builds it again and he comes and knocks it all down. And you wonder how long can your child put up with this before he cries out. Now you can imagine if you've ever planted a garden or worked on crops... ...the hard work that goes into it. Imagine the Israelites out in their fields. Maybe their children are there helping them. ...after the second year, the third year, as they're doing that hard work... ...are they not thinking, why are we doing this? They're just going to come again and destroy it... ...before we get a chance to eat of the harvest. Are the kids not complaining? Are you not complaining? You know, maybe you've heard it in this form. Why do I have to make my bed? It's just going to get messed up again. But this is so much worse than that. So much worse than that. Verse 4 says that they did not spare a living thing. The Midianites came and they destroyed the crops. And they were killing the flocks. This was a terrible way to live. They were oppressed. They were hungry. They were tired. They were poor. They were afraid. They were on the run for their lives. They were losing hope. ...where is the surprising grace in this severe distress? Well, what's surprising about these opening verses... ...is not that there is suffering or distress in the midst of a fallen world. It's not surprising that the Israelites are suffering as a result of their sin... ...but the surprising grace is seen in what is not said here. See, in verse 1, what's not said is this... Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord poured out his holy and righteous wrath on them for all eternity. What's surprising is what doesn't happen. What doesn't happen is they are not immediately sent to hell for their idolatry. For their rebellion and rejection of God. What's surprising is not that they are suffering. But that they are not suffering worse. ...think about what the Israelites should have been suffering. For as severe as the distress was... ...it was infinitely better. It was infinitely better than the suffering that they deserved to be receiving in hell at that very moment. It was infinitely better what they were suffering. Infinitely better than what you and I deserve to be suffering in hell at this very moment... The severe distress that they were under was like a vacation paradise... ...compared with what they truly deserved and should have been receiving right then. They had had seven years to repent. Now you might think, year after year, how can they endure this distress? But perhaps the more appropriate question to ask is, year after year... ...how can God endure their idolatry... ...Pastor Rogers is preaching through a series in the morning after death. What? And he's been tackling some unpleasant subjects. And he's mentioned that well-known sermon by Jonathan Edwards... ...Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that sermon, Edwards does vividly portray the wrath of God... against ...against deserving sinners. But that message is also a message of grace. Because while God would be perfectly just... ...and sending all men and women to hell... ...while his wrath, as Edward says... ...is aimed at unrepentant sinners... ...it has not yet been unleashed. You are not yet in hell. And Edward says the only thing keeping you out of hell... ...at any one moment is the grace of God. The mere sovereign pleasure of God. God is being gracious to you. You are not there yet... Martin Lord Jones says it like this. Grace is favor shown to people who deserve no favor at all. We deserve nothing but hell. And he says, if you think you deserve heaven, take it from me. You are not a Christian. God is being gracious to the Israelites. Yes, they are suffering. But oh, it could be so much worse. And it should be so much worse. They could be lost forever in hell. You know, part of the reason that Jesus has not yet returned... ...is because God is being gracious with unrepentant sinners. He may be being gracious and patient with one of your family members... ...or one of your neighbors, or maybe with you tonight. In 2 Peter 3, we're told that the Lord is not slow... ...to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness... ...but is patient towards you... ...not wishing that any should perish... ...but that all should reach repentance. Where should we be? Where should the Israelites have been? I believe you will never come to grips with how amazing... ...how surprising God's grace is... ...until you believe and understand that you do not deserve it. Until you truly believe... ...that you deserve to be in hell right now... ...at this very moment... ...being punished for eternity for your evil deeds. Their surprising grace... and what they are not receiving. But the second reason I see grace in this opening section... ...is because the distress, though it was painful... ...it actually led the Israelites to cry out to the Lord. God was giving them a chance to repent... And so what this means is that there is something more important... ...than having enough to eat. There is something more important than living in a comfortable home. There's something more important than having a profitable job. There's something more important than avoiding pain and suffering. There's something more important than peace between neighbors. know, what's more important than all those things? What's more important than all this world has to offer... ...is being restored to a right relationship with your God. What's more important is being made aware of the fact... ...that you are a sinner in need of a Savior... ...and then crying out to God... ...and turning from your sin and to God. What's more important than having enough to eat... ...is coming to Jesus, the bread of life. Whoever comes to Him will not hunger. Whoever believes in Him will never thirst... What's more important than living in a comfortable home is having an eternal home prepared for you in heaven. What's more important than having a profitable job is giving your life to things that will profit for eternity. Jesus said, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. What's more important than the avoidance of suffering and pain ...is recognizing the pain and suffering that Christ endured on your behalf... ...and being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. What's more important than avoiding the suffering and pain... ...of living in a fallen world... ...which is impossible... ...is avoiding the unending, incomparable suffering in hell... ...which is made possible only through Jesus Christ. What's more important than peace between neighbors... ...is peace with God. The distress here... ...is designed to lead to all those things that are more important. The distress here and in the bigger picture... ...God's discipline of all his children is evidence of surprising grace... ...because God disciplines those he loves for their eternal good. You know, you might think of it this way. Um, Last Christmas, we finally caved in and got our children a puppy... Uh, If you know my family, we have five kids, the oldest is 13, we have twins that are, are almost ready to turn eight, and they've been asking for a puppy from the time that they could talk, I think. And we finally said, okay, they're all out of diapers, they're a little older, maybe they can help, we'll go ahead and get them a puppy. Now that we're dog owners for almost a year now, we've been talking to some other dog owners from the congregation, and they've been talking to us about the value of having an electric fence. Now think about this. An electric fence, what does it do? It inflicts pain on your beloved pet. Now, why would you want to have an electric fence? But think about what it accomplishes. Yes, it might hurt your little, adorable pet. But why? What's the purpose of the pain? The purpose of the pain is, it's it's a little bit of minor pain... ...to prevent, perhaps, fatal pain. The purpose of the fence is to allow your pet to enjoy the freedom of the yard and the love of your children. Because if the dog is just allowed to run free, it could run out into the busy road in front of your house and suffer major pain that could end its life. So if you don't care about the dog, you just let it run free. You don't get an electric fence. And We don't have an electric fence now... ...so now I'm going to have to get one... ...because my kids are listening to me. Um, But the purpose is to protect... ...to provide safety... ...to provide freedom. There's grace in this distress... ...because it's meant to save you... ...from the grave. You know, God's discipline... ...is meant to turn us from sin... ...that leads to death... ...and turn us to God... ...who brings life and peace... Their surprising grace in the midst of this severe distress because it did not end in their destruction and their damnation. Which it should have. And God had every right to make it do that. It is what they had deserved. It's what they earned. But instead, God used it as a tool to lead to their restoration and their salvation. So what about you? How do you respond to the distress in your life? You know, the Bible does not teach that it is always a result of God's discipline. I'm not saying that. The Bible does say, though, that it may be. So when there's distress in your life... ...do you have a teachable spirit? Do you come to the Lord in humility? Do you pray and ask Him to search your heart... ...and see if there's any wicked way in you... ...and lead you in the way everlasting? Do you run to God and trust Him... Or do you run away from God in complaining and in rebellion? God's surprising grace shows up even in the midst of severe distress. Well, The second way we see the surprising grace is found in verses 7 through 10. And we find that there is surprising grace in the face of disobedience. First, there's grace in the fact that God heard their cry. And he answers their cry. And you might say, why? Was God obligated to hear their cry? Did he have to listen and answer? No, he did not. He had every right to destroy them for their sin. Why did he answer them? Look what it says in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is Judges chapter 6. This is the fifth time... We've read that in this book. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they would rebel. They would do evil again and again and again. But it should not surprise us that they did evil. That they were caught in this cycle of rebellion and repentance and rescue. It shouldn't surprise us because we do it too. We are familiar with the cycle because we live it. The story of Judges is the story of the Bible. It's the story of you. It's the story of me. It's our story. You know, what should surprise us... ...is the fact that the Bible does not just end... ...right after verse 10. When the prophet says, but you have not listened to me. Why doesn't the Bible just end right there? With every man, woman, and child... ...sent to hell forever. Praise God for His grace... ...that the Bible does not end there. We are not yet dead. He hears the cries of repentant sinners... ...so that they can live. But I think there's also surprising grace... ...in how God answers the Israelites cry. It's not just that he did hear their cry... ...it's how he answered their cry. In verse 8, it tells us that the Lord... ...when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian... ...he sent them a prophet. Now I know... This is not the Hollywood film, American dream version of an answer. You know, that would be something more like the angel of the Lord... ...swooping down with his army and obliterating the Midianites... ...and bringing up an incredible harvest of crops... ...and returning them all to their beautiful, luxurious homes... ...that have all been the recipients of these extreme makeovers... ...and they would have incredible peace with their neighbors. That's what would be the American dream version of an answer... ...but God gives them something so much better. Something so much more needful. And it's surprising grace because it comes in the form... ...of a rebuke from the mouth of a prophet... ...instead of the sword or the tent peg of a judge. But it leads to true deliverance, lasting. You see, the people just... ...they don't just need their circumstances changed... ...they need their hearts changed... They don't just need rescue from their oppressors. They need to know why they have been oppressed. They need to see their sin so that they can turn from it. So the prophet reminds them of who God is. Of what God has done. Of what he demands of them. And then he rebukes them for their idolatry. They have not listened to the Lord their God. They have disobeyed. This is surprising grace because the prophet comes... ...and instead of bringing a message of damnation without hope... ...he speaks words of life and words of truth. His message is meant to reveal their sin... ...to unmask their idols... ...to deliver them from suicidal pleasures that end in death. It's a message we need to hear. It's a message that God sent later through the prophet Isaiah... ...in Isaiah chapter 55... ...where God says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread... ...and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good... ...and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant... ...my steadfast, sure love for David. Hear... That your soul may live. He comes to bring a message of life. The Israelites were bowing down to Baal. They were worshipping an idol of the nations. One that would not satisfy this worship. If it continued would end in death. God sent the prophet to deliver them from this death. But again what about you? Have you listened to God? ...or are you worshipping the gods of the Americans... ...in whose land you live? Gods of power... ...or money... ...morality... ...good works... ...self-esteem, accomplishment, pleasure... ...are you looking to those things... ...to save you, to give you a sense of value... ...or accomplishment... ...or acceptability... ...or worth, or purpose... ...or purity... ...something that only Jesus Christ can give. We need to see our idolatry. We have not listened. Oh, we may have heard what God has said. Like children often hear their parents. You might ask them, did you hear me? And they will say, yes. But you will say, but you have not listened to me. And what are you you saying? You're saying they're not taking heed... ...to what you're saying. They're not obeying you. You may be hearing from God... ...when you're in this building on Sunday... ...but are you listening to the gods of the Americans... ...the rest of the week? Who reigns in your heart? Who reigns in your life? David Paulson asks... ...has something or someone... ...besides Jesus the Christ... ...taken the title... ...to your heart's trust, preoccupation... ...loyalty, service, fear, and delight. Who or what rules your behavior? Is it the Lord or is it a substitute, an idol? But you see, the good news is that God is patient with his people. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He calls us to repent... ...and then He promises to forgive us... ...and He promises also to give us the power to deliver us from idols... ...so that we can serve the living and true God. The surprising grace is that when God ought to destroy... ...He delivers yet again. When He has every right to shatter... ...Instead, He prepares to save. There is surprising grace in the midst of severe distress... And there is surprising grace in the face of disobedience. And finally, in the last section, verses 11 through 24, we see that there is also surprising grace in the calling of a deliverer. Now first, we see the surprising grace in the promise of God's presence. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you. But Gideon responds in verse 13 with doubt. He says, wait a minute. What do you mean God is with us? If God is with us... ...then what's going on here? Why all this severe distress? Why isn't the Lord bringing plagues upon the Midianites... ...like he did to the Egyptians... ...if God is with us? You see, the people had heard about God and his ways... ...but they were not listening and... Gideon's questions show just how much the people needed the rebuke from the prophet. We are so easily blind to our sin. We miss it. And we need to be told, like the prophet Isaiah again in Isaiah 59... ...where he said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save... ...or his ear dull that it cannot hear... ...but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God... ...and your sins have hidden his face from you... ...so that he does not hear. See, what's so amazing... ...is that God does not just leave it at that. He comes... ...and he promises his presence to Gideon... ...the next deliverer of God's people. But his answer is... "Oh, Gideon, you have not been abandoned. I have been here the whole time... Offering my surprising grace to you. And you are about to see the wonders that I can do. I am going to deliver you yet again and I'm going to do it through you, Gideon. But Gideon objects. He says, I can't do it. My family is the weakest and I'm the least of my family. So God says again in verse 16, I will be with you. This is the same promise that God gave to Moses that Gideon would have heard about. It's the same promise that he gave to Joshua that Gideon would have heard about. How could he not recognize that that God is now coming to him? Gideon, I will be with you. But it's also the same promise that Jesus Christ has spoken to you and to me. Lo, I am with you always. To the very end of the age. But I wonder how many of us are like Gideon in verse 13. How many of us are asking that question? God, if you are with me, then why the distress in my life? If you are with me, why did I lose my job? If you are with me, why did somebody that I love die? If you are with me... Why have my parents gotten a divorce? If you are with me, why are my kids rebelling or my grandkids not walking with the Lord? If you are with me, why do I have all these health problems? Why are my relationships in strife? Why does my car break down? Why do my checks bounce? Where are all your wonders? Why are you not blessing my parenting efforts? Why am I still enslaved by this sin... ...has God abandoned us? The answer is no. God will never abandon his people. Jesus does not lie. Lo, I am with you always. To the very end of the age. This is God's trump card to all troubles. I am with you Now God may not give all the reasons for the troubles. He might not give you all the whys. All the details. But he gives you something better. He gives you himself. He promises his presence. There could be nothing better. You need nothing else. The psalmist cries out... ...whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail... ...but God is the strength of my heart... ...and my portion forever. There is surprising grace... ...in the promise of God's presence. There's also surprising grace... ...in the promise of God's peace. And we're going to move right down to... ...verses 23 through 24 for sake of time. That whole section there with Gideon... uh, ...wanting a sign... And bringing this offering. And the angel of the Lord having fire come out of a rock. It was all meant to show Gideon that the promise was indeed from God. And it was his promise. But now we see at the end here this surprising grace. And the promise of God's peace. And I find it utterly fascinating how this passage ends. In verse 23 and 24. Let me read it for you again. Verse 23. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. Now how can he say that? There is not peace at that moment, is there? There is severe, terrible distress. How could there be peace when the people had not listened To God. And what does an altar bring to mind? Not only does he say, peace, you are not going to die. But then Gideon builds an altar. And what happens on an altar? There is death. There is sacrifice. See, Gideon will not die. The people will not die. Because there will be a sacrificial substitute death. And there is a much greater one coming that Gideon and the people of the Old Testament look forward to that we have the blessing of looking back on. The one that the the angels declared in Luke chapter 2 when they said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the multitude of heavenly hosts appeared and they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. ...peace among those with whom he is pleased. The reason we have hope for peace today... ...is because a perfect, a final deliverer has come. In verse 8 of Judges 6... ...the Lord answered the cry by sending them a prophet. But when you turn to the New Testament... God answers our cry. He answers our need by sending his son. Galatians chapter 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And John chapter 3, which Dr. Rogers mentioned this morning, you know John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. God would send his son who would be prophet, priest, and king. Who would be ...judge, savior, and final deliverer. There is surprising grace... ...and the promise of peace. William Hendrickson says this of grace. He says, God's grace... ...is his active favor... ...bestowing the greatest gift... ...upon those who have deserved... ...the greatest punishment. God's grace is his active favor... ...bestowing the greatest gift... ...upon those who have deserved... ...the greatest punishment punishment. This grace is so surprising. It's so amazing because of who it comes to. It comes to those who deserve the greatest punishment. Those who deserve hell. Something like suffering the torments of crucifixion for all eternity. This is who grace comes to. It's so amazing because of what it is. It is the greatest gift. It is God's riches. And it's so amazing because of what it cost... ...and how it was made possible. You may be familiar with the acronym for grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Surprising grace is possible because it came at the expense of Christ himself. You were redeemed. You have peace if you are a child of God... ...not at the cost of perishable things like silver and gold... But at the cost of the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish, there is grace everywhere. And we never outgrow our need for God's sustaining grace. Well, I said that you see grace in every line. But there is also a terror in this passage. There is also horror here because the horror of this passage... ...is not how severe the distress was for the Israelites... ...the horror is the very real reality that we deserve worse. And we will receive worse if we persist in our evil... ...and reject the Son of God. For what will God's wrath be like... ...if Judges 6 was a display of his surprising grace... If you are not yet a child of God, it may be that the distress in your life is designed by God to save you from a much worse fate, to save you from the eternal wrath of a holy God that you justly deserve. It may be that the distress in your life is meant to lead you to cry out to God for salvation. For as bad as this distress was, there is something much Much worse. If you have not listened to God, I pray that tonight will be the night that you cry out to Jesus Christ for salvation and experience His surprising grace. And if you are already a child of God, may you be amazed, may you be stunned. At the surprising, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray.